millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Streams of Winter. Livestream 14. House Tyrell. Hello and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much to all of you for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about not an individual character, but a house who have been set up as opposition to Cersei Lannister through the books, and these tensions could come to a crescendo in The Winds of Winter. Will the Tyrells have a bit part in the next novel, or will they get their thorns into Cersei and take centre stage? To help me answer these questions and more, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the live stream. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I don't think our guest needs much introduction, but uh, thank you to Aziz from History Westeros down below for joining us today on short notice because our guest, plant guest, had a family emergency. So Aziz, thank you for being here to talk about the Tyrells. Right on. Thanks for having me. Actually, my name is not Aziz. My name is Christina. I'm from the blood, <laughs> I'm from the blood of the podcast. I'm really excellent with data, especially surveys. I've done some awesome <laughs> cosplays of the Night Queen and Shara Seastar. I look kind of like a Lannister, even though we're talking Tyrells today. But yeah, I'm ready to go. Okay. Thank you. AKA Lady Triple. That's right. Uh, on Twitter, right? So, uh, yes, I stand <laughs> corrected. <laughs> when we said you were our utility player, we didn't know you were like a method utility player. <laughs> I'm just trying this whole faceless man thing out, see how it works. I, I, I don't have the voice or the look, but, you know, a couple of the words match up. So it's if you progress. just keep saying it, maybe we'll, <laughs> people will believe it. <laughs> Seems to work for some people. (laughs) All right. So, um, spoilers, everything. You know, we don't usually talk about the show, but here we do. Uh, In our regular episodes, we don't. Here in our live streams, we do. And I'm sure we will today. So, uh, let's get started with uh, the Tyrells. Yoke Boy. Okay. So, we're going to talk about House Tyrell. Maybe for the first half, we'll kind of give a background overview, and then we'll talk about where where they're going in the Winds of Winter. So to begin, unlike the other great houses, the Tyrells have no royal history. Does this detail explain the Tyrells' ambition of ascendancy from the very beginning? Is this factor 
part of their setup, Lady Gwyn? Well, yes. I mean, the narrative of House Tyrell is they're essentially social climbers, right? 300 years after they were elevated from mere stewards to Lords Paramount, it seems like some of the other Lords Paramount still hold their humble origins against them. With relatively few illustrious members in their family tree, in the current era, they're still struggling to make themselves stand out to achieve that level of power and recognition that they've been denied since the conquest. Excellent. And for me, the factor of no royal history for the Tyrells does frame them as a house with extra reason to be ambitious. Remember their house words are growing strong, and so pair together these factors almost work in our subconscious to tell us that this is an ambitious house, which is what plays out over the many pages where we witness this Tyrell ascendancy. Aziz? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think looking at the house words says a lot. If you look around at the great houses, you have like winter is coming, which stands out because it's a warning and it's not just a warning. It's directly relevant to central plots and themes. Hear me roar is a statement of power. A Lannister always pays his debts is their unofficial motto. That's like a threat as well as a declaration of honor. We do not sow is a threat. Family duty honor is high minded and humble, while as high as honor is high minded, but prideful Unbowed, unbent, and broken, declares Dornish attitudes about independence while highlighting fierceness and resilience really well. So growing strong isn't really a personality trait. It's more of a declaration of intent. It's like we're powerful, but it doesn't include uh, any specifics. It's not unique. It's not necessarily, uh, it doesn't spell out what they are. It's more of a, a statement of intent or an attribute rather than something specific to them as personality traits. And I think that's reflected in a lot of the way George presents them as a family. You get the brown eyes and brown hair and things like that, which aren't meant to be ordinary, but they're meant, I mean, I have brown hair. I don't think of myself as ordinary, but certainly there's more brown hair out there and brown eyes than other things. So I think George, even in little things like this, he wants to highlight their wealth and their power and not necessarily uh, these other attributes that come with some of the other families like unique look uh, like the Starks have a look, the Dor a lot of the Dornish have looks, things like that. This is not, a lot of these factors are absent with the Tyrells, and that in itself tells a story. Okay, so, yeah, and it's been great to watch them grow stronger through the books so far. But to rewind a bit, through the first couple of books, the Tyrells are coupled with Renly Baratheon through the Marjorie marriage, when Robert died, they organised in order to challenge for the throne with Mace as Renly's hand. Yet after Renly's death, thanks to Littlefinger, the Tyrells allied with Tywin and Joffrey and were a critical part of the defence of King's Landing at the Battle of Blackwater. So to what extent does this frame the Tyrells as political opportunists, Lady Wynne? Well, in my opinion, it's very hard to see them in any other light. In fact, you know, while their alliance with Renly might have been sincere, or at least it was presented that way early on, in hindsight, it's also very difficult not to assume that it was uh, probably entirely cynical, except maybe for Loras. Yeah, it is easy to see them as opportunists, but... If you were in an ambitious house, 
what other path is there? This is the realism of the system of nobility that we see throughout Westeros. Have you got any comments, Aziz? Yeah, I think that's a great point, um, especially referring to them as social climbers and, and power brokers. They're, that is what defines them. The Lannisters are, are already powerful. They're an established power. It's not really, they're not really defined by climbing, although they have climbed. It's not really how we look at them because there's, there's so much else going on. The Tyrells are perhaps the best example of a house that reflects Westerosi society. It's This is the system that exists. This is what the powerful houses are going to aim for because this is where the power lies. This is where the, uh, what the system uh, encourages. Houses like the Tyrells growing powerful, uh, growing strong, <laughs> and spreading out, having lots of um, influence in a variety of places. We see that encroachment. Cersei in particular deals with that. Well, they're, oh, they're trying to get on the council. They're trying to be regent. They're trying to do this, trying to be that. They're trying to grab all these positions. And... There's just this is what any house would do if they could. So the Tyrells are basically the the test case or the litmus test for this sort of how power plays out within Westeros um, for for more of the new blood, I suppose you could say, because it's a a little different for the older families because they lean so much on their history. But Tyrells can't do that as much. Excellent. And I thought we could now kind of zoom in on some of the Tyrell characters one by one and kind of give a breakdown of where they are. Unlike players like Varys and Littlefinger, Olena Tyrell is a highborn woman and a strong one at that. So is House Tyrell a matriarchy? And if so, to what extent is the Queen of Thorns responsible for this culture, Lady Gwyn? Well, it's tempting to say entirely, but I think it's interesting to consider if Olena Redwine is actually the architect of House Tyrell's advancement, meaning can we explain the contrast between their relatively lackluster history and the naked ambition on display in A Song of Ice and Fire by pointing to her, this woman who wasn't actually born a Tyrell? Or is there something else, you know, is there a longer history of this sort of hidden in the shadows? Maybe even a longer history of female leadership uh, in-house Tyrell, which by its very nature would lead to fewer men being in the history books. Yeah, the history as it pertains to House Tyrell is, is very interesting. It's very often in A Song of Ice and Fire, history can help us predict the future. With House Tyrell, we mostly are guessing because their future hasn't fully been determined. We're on the cusp of a lot of events for House Tyrell, I assume. Uh, but if we look back on their history in terms of main conflicts, <clears throat> there's just a lot of them sitting out <laughs> or not participating at all, which really does say a lot about how we view them. There, There's a lot of <laughs> Tyrell success in tournaments over the years. That is something that's a big part of their history, but not a lot of success elsewhere, which is like, hmm, what's George telling us here? Do really well when it comes to pageants and social events, but when it comes to war and major political upheaval, they're just not involved. During When Aegon's conquest happened, of course, they weren't in charge at all. They surrendered 
how they surrendered High Garden to Aegon. So fair play. They were they were the steward house then. Then they quickly latched on to Aegon. Harlan Tyrell leads an army into Dorne, and he just vanishes. Narratively speaking, is that like, well, the Tyrells are are they just gonna one day just we're just gonna wake up and realize they just don't have any power anymore? <laughs> they're just like, well, they're just gone, aren't they? Uh in the Dance of the Dragons, the the Regent Mother, there was a boy lord house ty- for the Tyrells. And this regent mother, whose name we don't even know, she decided to stay out. Now that, in retrospect, that worked out great. I would give this woman some credit. Maybe she's a precursor to Olena. Of course, Olena seems like the type who would want her family to get involved. Regardless, based on the circumstances, I got to say she made the right play. In the conquest of Dorne, that's where we get the Scorpions incident. I mean, I'm talking about Daron's conquest, not Aegon's conquest, because that's you know. So this is these are the two times where the the Tyrells do show up. The two major times the Tyrells are involved are when it was Dorne, when it was an invasion of Dorne, and both times it was a disaster. The, the first time the army disappears. The second time is when we have that Scorpion incident, where the dude pulls the the silken bed thing and the scorpions fall on him. And never forget, by the way. That Oberyn Martell said he'd rather deal with those scorpions than Cersei. And the Tyrells are in bed with Cersei, metaphorically. <laughs> so they're tied to her. So Oberyn said that. So let's be clear. <laughs> okay, so the Blackfire rebellions. There were several. What did the Black what did the what did the Tyrells do? Pretty much nothing. <laughs> we had a guy who was a famous tourney knight at the time, Leo Longthorn, but he just didn't show up at the Battle of the Red Grass Field, even though he said he was going to. So, mm, we don't know what happened in the third Blackfire Rebellions all that much. It's possible he, they participated there, but that's that's the closest we can get. Robert's Rebellion took credit for beating Robert, besieged Storm's End. I mean, they were eating, like, fancy meals during this siege, so I, you can't really say this was some military achievement. And they didn't even achieve it because Ned came south broke the siege Stannis was free so what did Mace do (laughs) during the war besides take credit for (laughs) Randall Tarly's victory over Robert that's about it and then in the war of the five kings they join Renly which goes nowhere and then they sneak attack Stannis from behind so they did at least get involved but it was another like well this is an easy pickings we can sneak attack right so that's that's it. <laughs> so uh, back to the original question, a pattern of woman leaders. It's not necessarily apparent, but it isn't not apparent either, because throughout that list, there weren't a lot of names, right? They were mostly just Lord Tyrell and a couple of names. And if we look at history, let's think about it this way. Is If we were to imagine A Song of Ice and Fire 50 years from now, the world as it is, are they going to remember Olena Tyrell? Not a lot, I don't think. I think they'll rem- the history books, because they're probably going to be written by men, will remember the guy in front, Mace Tyrell. No one's going to know that Olena arranged the Purple Wedding, probably. I mean, maybe that gets outed. And then if, if it does, then, it's, then she'll definitely be remembered. But assuming that's just a secret that most people never learn, maybe we get the, I want Cersei to know it was me. Maybe that happens. And then it does get known. But otherwise, Olena's going to be largely forgotten by history because her impact on the world was very secret. It was powerful. It was strong. It was potent. But it was sneaky. And the sneakiest deeds of the sneakiest people are never discovered by even real-world historians, you know? Uh, So I don't see why it would be much different in Westeros. 
And staying on the subject of the Queen of Thorns, Elena is a schemer and a shrewd player of the Game of Thrones. And I've already mentioned her in the same breath as Varys and Littlefinger. So how do we rate Olena as a political player? And what is her modus operandi compared to the other players of this game? Lady Gwyn? Well, she's certainly a top-level player, and she's arguably more effective on some levels than both of those men, since she enjoys a higher social status, and so she can kind of do more things. And as a woman, she's going to inevitably be dismissed and overlooked. She can always play the batty old lady card and look at her, the dinner she has with Sansa in A Storm of Swords when she's just, you know, she's got butter bumps and she's going on about cheese and, you know, but this is actually a very, is very important part of her, uh, of her plotting, you know, so she's covering it up by just pretending that she's this wacky old lady. Uh, So she seems to be a master at leveraging the expectations that people hold of her sex. So, I mean, but on the other hand, House Tyrell in general was successfully manipulated by Littlefinger in the matter of the Joffrey Marjorie marriage. I mean, that was painfully easy, although in that case, it was basically Mace that was being manipulated. (laughs) So we could say that about him. But uh, Elena's participation in the plan to kill Joffrey, you know, in that case was more or less damage control because you know, Lord Puffish got her into this and she's she's going to have to figure out how to how to get them out of it. But it's important to remember that her damage control played right into Peter Baelish's hands. So he first played Mace and then he latched on to Olena's attempts to kind of make that better. And she whatever what she did then was exactly what he wanted her to do. So, you know, she's top level player, but I don't think she's quite little finger level. <laughs> yeah, she has more power in other areas, right? She's not quite as like if we're going the ten point scale, if Varus is a ten and Littlefinger's a nine and a half or a nine, Olena's maybe an eight or an eight and a half, but she's so much more powerful in other ways, right? Like Varus and Littlefinger both lament their lack of swords. Whereas Olena has High Garden. I mean she's got those two seven footers with her at all times, just as an example, uh, or as a suggestion of how much, how many other <laughs> men are standing behind her metaphorically. <laughs> so that, which is part of why she can have this attitude. She can say what she wants. Whereas virus is constantly like, well, if I tell the queen that she'll kill me. If I tell Tywin that he'll kill me. If I don't say this just right, sh- they'll kill me. Whereas Elena's like, oh, I can say whatever I want. <laughs> I can literally say anything, and it's all good. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is kind of like what you were saying with playing the batty old lady cards, but it's also and it reflects her her highborn status. Um, so yeah, she does play that off extremely well. It's 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 really good writing and and a great character. Yeah, I really appreciate having a female player of the Game of Thrones who does offer something different for our reading compared to Varys and Littlefinger. So on the subject of Varys, a key moment for the Tyrells is when Varys plants a gardener coin in the Black Cells that Cersei is led to believe belongs to Olenna and therefore counts 
as evidence that the Queen of Thorns helped Tyrion escape. What are the immediate and long-term effects of this ruse if we consider the butterfly effect, Lady Gwyn? Well, if this is just brilliant. Varys knew exactly how to play this hand of the game. Like Littlefinger before him, he uses the power of suggestion to create a desired effect. Cersei's conviction that the Tyrells had assisted her hated brother in murdering their father. What I find extremely ironic in terms of Cersei is that she never takes it a step further and considers that maybe the Tyrells had also been responsible for Joffrey's death. <laughs> like, yeah, she never gets that far. She just doesn't go there, which is, you know, to me that is very, very strange. But um, That's you know, in character so, though, isn't it? Let's of course, it. yeah. <laughs> so. And they, I think you may give them credit for that too. She, they, they know by pinning it on Tyrion that she will just get so wrapped up in that. She'll just be like so... Uh, not considering of other options because that's that's her pain point. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the perfect kind of paranoia trap for them. I, I was thinking that it was a, a great ploy given its simplicity, as if there would be a gardener coin left behind. Varys knows that Cersei thinks she is a mastermind, but is in fact rather stupid on matters such as these and. Varys takes full advantage of this fact. Cersei sees what she wants to see, and it doesn't take much power of suggestion, as Lady Gwyn said, to get her going. Linking Tyrion to the Tyrells opens up the trademark Cersei paranoia and the butterfly effect, which sees Cersei sink herself by trying to sink the Tyrells. And this thread is going to continue well into the next novel, isn't it, Aziz? Oh, yeah, certainly. And I love just the efficiency here. If you were to ask Varus and Illyrio, how much are you willing to pay to get the Tyrells and Lannisters to fight each other? I'm sure the amount would be substantial, but he got it for one gold coin and not even a full-sized gold <laughs> coin. <laughs> Like, that is an incredible price. Like, that's an incredible bargain. That's like buying Apple stock for a penny 100 years ago. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, yes, that's the value is enormous. So, that's a, yep, that's Wolf of Wall Street level. <laughs> a, a great investment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, if you look, I wonder if there's like, Several other single gold coins concealed in other loose stone. Like, right. okay, I'm going to put 10 of these just to make just sure they find put, one of just them. Just to be certain that she finds one. <laughs> yeah. I bet there's one in the walls of the, the Hand of the Kings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, curiously, we keep finding sol solitary gold coins from another era inside wa loose wall stone. It became an, uh, a bit of an out, uh, a bit of a, a, a thing. People just started pulling out bricks, just looking for gold. <laughs> Once and word before got you out. knew it, the whole city was torn down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really how King's Landing will fall. Right, brick by brick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our mocking of Cersei rolls over from last week, last live stream into this one. And moving on, early on, the, the Tyrells blocked the Rose Road into King's Landing, and the small folk truly suffered as a result. As she becomes queen, Marjorie gives generous amounts of food to the same people, and they soon 
love and idolise her for it. So to what extent is Marjorie being being genuinely kind here and philanthropic or is she merely acting insincerely and in the Tyrell interest, Lady Gwynne? Well, in my opinion, everything any member of House Tyrell does is calculated on some level. I mean, it's it's part of their DNA, as we were talking about earlier. They're social climbers. They're growing strong. They're they're always looking to get to that next level to achieve that respect or, or be welcomed into the club. You know, it's it's kind of an age old story. But Marjorie you know, might be inclined to do good works. I I mean, we have to grant her that. That's entirely possible. But we can be almost certain that her family were very keen to whitewash the fact that they had just recently been responsible for the blockade of the city by a rebel lord and his army, which led to food shortages, exorbitant prices, the bread riot, untold numbers of dead. You know, the Tyrells clearly need to distance themselves from that and uh, Marjorie doing her thing is a very good way to do that. Well, I think the Tyrells do act behind a facade, as Lady Gwyn was saying. And we shouldn't forget that as bad as Joffrey was, Elena was still prepared to kill a child brutally and at his own wedding. But perhaps for the small folk... It might be a refreshing change to see someone even pretend to give a shit about them. What do you think, Aziz? Yeah, that's true. They are so downtrodden that, and they don't have access to information. It's not like they can look up who really caused the food shortage. They're just going to blame the people in power. It's just that simple. They just like, well, you're in charge. We're not eating. It's your fault. And they're not entirely wrong with that attitude, but uh, we know better as readers. We have not total omniscience, but we know more than any single character does or the peasants of King's Landing. And we do know that, yeah, the, they did that. And and now they're benefiting, benefiting from it cynically. Uh, but I wonder, and I wonder if it's going to backfire on them. If, if public opinion turns against them, they're trying so hard to be the good guys uh, to be recognized as saviors, yet someone it seems like they're being set up for a better savior to come along. Uh, that's, after all, what Varus and Illyrio's endgame with Aegon the Sixth is, to make him look like this great savior of the realm. And the Tyrells are going to be like, we're married to the wrong house. <laughs> this guy clearly looks better. And, but that's going to be too late. They're married. I mean, Tom and Marjorie are married. I mean, how are they going to, I don't see how they get out of this entanglement with the Lannisters. Even, even if they do, it will be too, it, it'll probably be too late for them to uh, switch to the new winning side. Even, I mean, of course, Aegon the Six will probably then also be the losing side. So even if they do switch to his side, it's still not going to go well. <laughs> so <laughs> it just be more comedy, I okay, guess. So. Yeah, they they just if they unless they team even into it. Even teaming up with Danny might not work out. I don't know who they could team up with to go well at this point. So I don't even know who the winning side is, but it doesn't <laughs> seem like they're on it. <laughs> no. L- literally married to the Lannisters. What could go wrong? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Things blowing. I could just blow up in their face. More on that later. <laughs> Kaboom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So more on, uh, I want more on the, the tension between Cersei and Marjorie. A simple question. 
Where does this begin and what factors solidify Cersei's hatred of Marjorie, Lady Gwyn? Uh, well, Cersei's obviously motivated by the Valonqar prophecy. She thinks Marjorie is that younger, more beautiful person who's going to come along and take everything she holds dear. Uh, but she's also recognizing the opportunism, which is inherent in the Tyrell presence in her city, in her life. She just doesn't trust them. And rightfully so, in fact. So to top it off, she's afflicted with this prejudice against the upjumped stewards of Highgarden that we mentioned earlier. Uh, but, you know, really, I think this is, uh, you know, she's, she's, she doesn't trust them. She's got some instinct which is kicking in correctly here yeah she's right i mean it's like that i always attribute it to nirvana even though it's not a nirvana line originally the old just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you i mean yeah she is right the tyrells are after her they she they did kill her son <laughs> she's not wrong but but she's handling it terribly like tywin knew they were coming they would try to get as much power as they could too but the, he just accepted that as the cop price of doing business at at, at you know, around the throne. Like, this is always what happens. People are always going to try to get as much as they can. You're trying to get as much as you can. Why do you think they're going to be different? So she takes it personally when it's really just, this is how the game is always played, right? So she would do better to, to look at it a little uh, less, um, like, with more detachment, I think. But that's just not how Cersei is, so... <laughs> She would be less interesting if she was so rational. About it. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> rational isn't necessarily fun. Come on, y'all. No, no. <laughs> okay, I'll, I would like to talk more about Marjorie. Marjorie is intelligent in her own right and is clearly up to playing the Game of Thrones. But is she being actively controlled by Olenna? Or do we see the young queen as more of a, a protege who can operate independently, Lady Gwyn? Well, definitely she's a she's a protege. But uh, if we're talking about whether she's been involved in some of the more questionable aspects of Elena's plotting, I mean, I tend to think only on a need to know basis um, because too much knowledge would be a little dangerous, I think, for her. Although need to know i but i mean um she needs to know not to drink from joffrey's goblet at a certain point <laughs> that is a real need to know uh but i'm i'm sure the expectation is that elena isn't going to live forever and that marjorie will one day be in a position to take over her role as chief advancement officer for house tyrell i mean let's face it she's you know she, she's the expectation is she's going to be the Queen of Westeros, so she will be the person who is in the best in the best position to do that, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. It's it's not she's not gonna be a very effective on her own if if her mother or her grandmother is just like helping her out on everything. And I think we see that. The fact that she left the capital is pretty big. I mean, if she really thinks that Cersei if she knew that Cersei was the danger that she really turned out to be, that she would be so self-destructive in her way, in her 
attempts to bring on the Tyrells that she may have stuck around. She may not have realized exactly what Marjorie and Loris were up against. Um, it certainly hasn't gone well. Like she may at this point, I imagine she might be second guessing her decision to go back to Highgarden, be given how things have gone in the capital. But the initial idea of, yes, she needs to learn how to do this on her own. And yes, she is intelligent. I agree with that. She has shown very, uh, there's lots of hints of her, the way she presents herself and the way she conducts herself in conversations that shows she's very quick in her thinking and adjusts and notices little details. Uh, a lot like Sansa as well, but she's farther along that path because she's older than Sansa. Um, and is has so many friends. That's a big thing too. She's very confident. I think she has uh, a better support system than Sansa did because Sansa doesn't have a lot of friends, which Marjorie does. That's a big difference between the two of them. So I think that's also a big deal that Olena recognizes that Marjorie not only has needs to be left alone a little bit in order to learn and, and figure things out on her own, but she has a, a big support system with her. Loras or Mace is ostensibly around, even though he's not the best <laughs> guy for all this. But that's what they they got to roll with what they have. Uh, so, <laughs> and as we and as we know, she can't exactly tell Mace what to do. She can push him in one direction, manipulate him a little bit, but still, he's still Lord Puffish. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it must be difficult for Marjorie to kind of hold this burden. She's got to kind of present as this perfect queen. But there is scheming, so I imagine, you know, there is quite a burden for Marjorie there. And uh, Aziz, you were talking about Mace, so why don't we focus on Mace for a couple of questions now. Mace Tyrell is ambitious and has served as hand for both Renly and Tommen. And as we've said, the Tyrells are, in effect, a matriarchy. And Elena disparages him as an oaf and Lord Puffish, which is pretty funny, guys. So <laughs> yeah. how important is Mace to Tyrell plans? And just how competent is he really, Lady Gwyn? Well, how important he is. I mean, he's the head of the house. So, I mean, he's important in that he has to kind of stay the course for House Tyrell. But I pretty much take him at base value which means, you know, mace value, which is pretty much what you see is what you get. I don't think there's a lot more to meet that than meets the eye, unlike with Olena and Marjorie. Is he competent? I mean, barely. I'm looking at that siege of Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion when he was basically stymied by teenage Stannis Paratheon. I mean, you know, uh, Stannis outlasted him you know essentially and uh, i mean it, it certainly wasn't a raging success for mace and then and then ned came along so you know yeah yeah he, he does what he needs to do when he needs to do it and he seems to be well practiced at taking credit for other people's actions <laughs> too so yeah <laughs> I, I think the show may have muddied the water a little bit and muddied the water a lot on the Tyrells because there are a lot of small changes that add up to big changes. Mace Tyrell is, goes from being sort of incapable to a, a high, uh, having a high opinion of himself in the books to being just a total oaf in the, in the show. He is, f I mean, he's like, 
In the books, he's more of a C or a C minus. In the show, he's more of an F or, you know, it's there's bad and there's worse in terms of his portrayal. And I don't mean bad like they screwed up the character on the show. That's not what I mean. I just mean that they leaned even farther into his incompetence where he's not really that incompetent. He's just not that capable. Right. He didn't screw up the siege. He just didn't accomplish anything either. Right. He didn't. Yeah. It's just like he's just. Yeah, he's just not that good, but he's also not quite as he's not as terrible as the show portrayed him to be. Same with Marjorie, not same meaning she's not terrible, but I mean they aged her up a lot and gave her a lot more agency and and screen time. So uh, that and not to mention which something we'll talk about a little later is the the shrinking of the family, which is also a large thing, uh, potentially very large, but we don't know yet because well we just don't know yet. <laughs> Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, I want more Mace. So Mace is boastful as his status as a warrior due to the events of Robert's Rebellion. Yet it's well known his bannerman Randall Tarley is owed most of the credit for this. So it was kind of stealing credit and kudos there. Randall is a very hard man and presumably ambitious too. So do we imagine these two could have a reckoning to address in the Winds of Winter. It could be that Randall goes for Aegon. It's been theorised in the fandom, and, you know, I I can see that happening. Lady Gwyn? Mm -hmm. Yes, let's definitely talk about this. I think a lot has been made, um, and including here, we've alluded to it a couple times, of the fact that Randall Tarley commanded one of the t- the key royalist victories in Robert's Rebellion at Ashford, but he doesn't seem to have gotten much, much credit for it. And certainly for all of his efforts in the War of the Five Kings, he doesn't really gain much. You know, we the, the spoils of war is, is something that um, he doesn't... He, he doesn't really uh, benefit from. Uh, in fact, Brightwater Keep, which is the family home of his wife, uh, is taken from, uh, is taken and given to Mesa's son, Garland. So, you know, you, you can imagine that Randall Tarley is feeling a little bit, um, maybe pissed off, but <laughs> it's hard to tell if Randall has that sort of emotion or any sort of emotion, really. But, you know, He's he's ultimately in command of a significant part of the Reach army. 
he's made master of laws or justiciar or whatever they call it nowadays. Uh, but you know, I'm not sure that he's feeling like he's been rewarded or like he's gotten his due. So what if he has sour grapes and what if he takes his sour grapes off to the south to fight for the returning Targaryen? When in the Kevin chapter, um, they, you know, they talk about uh, John Connington and he keeps uh, going, if it is John Connington... I knew John Connington. If it is John Connington, he says it several times. So I want, I think it's worth noting that he fought side by side with John Connington when, when he was, uh, Connington was in command of Arius's army as, as hand. So, um, you know, if he becomes convinced that this is his old comrade in arms returned and that he has with him the son of Rhaegar Targaryen, uh, who, you know, he was a royalist. He was fighting for the Targaryens in Robert's Rebellion. I think he could ultimately decide that he's going to renew his fealty to House Targaryen. And, you know, perhaps by doing so, he's, his hope is going to be that he'll finally be rewarded, uh, get his get what he des- feels like he deserves. And obviously we're going to have much more on this in our next Primer episode when we head to the Stormlands, but... So on the subject, patron Christine wonders if the Tyrells would throw in with either of the Targaryen claimants. I think we just sort of answered what what we think is going to go on. It's going to be more like Randall gets pulled that way. And I I do think that the Tyrell story is entwined with the Lannisters. And I I just don't see that stopping. Lady Gwyn, do do you agree with that? Yeah, I don't think they're going to really have a chance to even do so unless there are some kind of surviving members of a side branch that do it out of vengeance. But it's not going to be like Randall Tarley's realignment. So I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, they may like this. They may pick up the pieces of what's left and be like, can we can we be a part of the new kingdom, please? Can we still exist? Because there are an awful lot of them, right? There's so many Tyrells. Like, we could wipe out the entirety of this main branch, and there'd still be a huge number of them left. So <laughs> I kind of doubt all of them die, although there's a lot of them at Old Town, so maybe a, maybe a large swath of them get taken out all at once. Who knows? <laughs> but, yeah, I agree. I don't see them necessarily having a chance to switch sides. Uh, I think, the, yeah, they're, they're wrapped up with Cersei. The one, the one op- opportunity... Maybe that suggests otherwise is that if Cersei pushes so hard that they just have to, that they're done, right? They, Cersei does something out in the open. Like if Cersei does the Sept thing and everyone knows it was her and she just openly blows up Tyrells, then they might have, <laughs> you know, justifiable cause to switch sides in a way that doesn't look dishonorable. Uh, but that's, I don't know, that's kind of thin, maybe. Yeah, we'll definitely get back to this subject more as we go on. And next, we've talked about Marjorie, Mace, and Elena. I wanted to talk about Loras, because Loras Tyrell was Renly's lover and a warrior of great potential. In the Game of Thrones, he volunteered to fight Gregor and his men, And in Feast, he volunteered to lead the storming of Dragonstone, which pleased the scheming Cersei. 
We last hear of Loras. He was successful in taking Dragonstone, but suffered some serious injuries, or so we're told. So patron Flinted Steel would like to know if we believe the reports about Loras to be true, or if there's a ruse going on. If so, what was the purpose of the trick? Aziz, do you have any ideas about this? I, I lean towards it not being a trick, although I like the idea of them playing it up a little bit. Uh, I'm not sh- entirely sure what the point of it would be besides having a surprise Kingsguard defender for the trial, but I'm not sure that the timeline supports that very well because they don't necessarily know how that would have played out, and they certainly I don't know that Loris would have been in on such a thing, uh, but I can see some sort of trickery going on because it's certainly a major theme of Cersei's feast arc is that she's being misled by almost everyone. So <laughs> there's people she's constantly being lied to. So it's definitely possible. I just I struggle to think why and and how and and it's just so hard it would be there's so many people that would have to be in on it's one of those conspiracies that a lot of people would have to be in on and that's that's a challenge to have that many people in on the secret that, that's part of where it falls off for me but if it's true then it does imply more of what we were talking about that the that the Tyrells maybe are really just trying to push the Lannisters away entirely, especially with Tywin gone. They probably didn't consider that much of an option with him around, but with just Cersei and Jaime and Tyrion's gone, they might be like, well, we can just take this whole thing over basically and rule through Tommen and we don't need the Lannister family. We just have this Baratheon, Tommen Baratheon (laughs) and just go with that. So I, uh, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, I, (sighs) I, I, most of the time, I'm almost sure that Loris isn't as badly wounded as he's been made out to be. But then you kind of got to wonder what's why. What, what was their purpose? Because the sole purpose, if if it was a ruse with the sole the sole purpose of which was for him to charge into King's Landing to rescue his sister, they couldn't have known that that she would need rescuing when he left. So. You know, if there's been some subterfuge, then the only thing that really makes sense to me is that he actually left Dragonstone. They stormed Dragonstone, took it, and then he took off with Paxter Redwine for some reason to fight the Ironborn. But that also doesn't kind of make sense, other than the fact that Cersei probably wouldn't let him go because he's in the Kingsguard. You know, so I, I can't really think of any other secret mission that he would have left for. So... You know, is it? It could be the case that he's just been really wounded, gravely wounded, and he's going to recover and come back to his, you know, kind of aid his family in King's Landing, only to be kaboomed with them. But you mentioned that the, them get pushing off, um, you know, pushing the Lannisters out, and so if their their goal is to kind of get rid of Jamie and Cersei, one of the things uh, we we touched on in our recent regular episode was whether Mace's goal might be to, I mean, he's obviously going to be trying to pack the small council in the winds of winter uh, with, you know, he's going to probably bring in uh, Arch, his, his uncle to replace Maester Pyrell. Did I say Pyrell? Yes. I am. It's been a long day. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Archmaester Gorman to replace Grand Maester Pycelle. Uh, and he's also 
got his uncle, Garth the Gross, that he wishes to bring in to be the uh, master of coin. This has come up a couple times already. And, uh, you know, if if uh, Harris Swift doesn't make it back from Bravos, then there's that opening. And it's mentioned that Garth the Gross has got a couple of bastard sons that he wants to put somewhere and I'm thinking you know the Kingsguard is going to have some openings so they could be packing the Kingsguard as well and if you take that a step further where's Jamie Lannister the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard he's missing he's gone he's he's MIA he's not doing his duty so if Loras comes back from Dragonstone and he's you know healed somehow whether he's just actually healed from being gravely wounded or whether he was never as badly wounded as people thought could Mace actually try to use the precedent of dismissing Barristan Selmy, who was the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, to say, you know what? Jamie Lannister's out. He hasn't been heard from in literally months, and we need a Lord Commander who's here on the ground, and our new Lord Commander is going to be my son, Loras. So, and then where's, where's Cersei at? She's got no one. She's just really fully more surrounded by Tyrells than ever, so... So, so what you're describing is an infestation of Tyrells, and this is what Cersei thinks about too. So, through her feast and dance arc, she does think about this infestation as she sees it. And could the Tyrells be tipping the balance of powers away from the Lannisters? And to what extent do we think Cersei? is correct to be concerned as he's. Yeah, I mean, certainly she is definitely correct. Uh, she just is not great at understanding what steps to take to uh, solve this this problem or this encroachment. I think I said something earlier about this briefly about how Tywin just accepted it as the cost of doing business and power. They're gonna get. They're gonna encroach, and they're gonna succeed in some ways, and we're gonna stop them in other ways. And that's just how it's gonna be. There's a ton of power to go around. We'll still be at the top as long as we control 51 percent of the power, and they're less 49 or less. It's all good. Um, but Cersei is like fighting over every one percent, even if they still have 60. If, even if it's you know 70 30, she's like, nope, we're not going 60. 6931. Nope, we're not going 6832. No, that 1% is that 1% is hundred percent fighting over every inch of ground. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> I, I think that is she just she doesn't really know how to give and to take that in flow. Like she needs to have a more zen approach. Like you can lose that one percent, but you could get it back a week from now. It's not gone forever, you know. You can you can mint more half-sized coins. Um uh so I think some of her her reads have been really good. The thing I like to point to her her instincts about the the ugly nature, or the cynical nature of people in power. She's very much on point with that. When she thinks about how oh they're all out to get me, oh they're all just trying out for themselves. Oh, this person is would do this if they had the chance. She's pretty much right every time she says that. <laughs> but in terms of how she do, deals with that is where it all falls apart for her. It's like, I identify the problem, but I do not know how to deal with it. But she's so confident in her mistakes. She's like, oh, I know exactly what to do. I'm better than Tywin. So... Uh, and she's got no ability to self-diagnose her mistakes because it's the same, like, well, that's Westerosi culture. We don't, 
this male-dominated society does not admit mistakes. We're like, no, it was someone else's fault, or no, we just pretend that never happened. <laughs> and and she's definitely being outnumbered, isn't she? After the deaths of Joffrey and Tywin, the Tyrells are really packing them in there, as Lady Gwyn was talking about, and they're astute enough to play Cersei completely off the board if she's not careful. So my next question is, what have Cersei's methods been so far to try and subdue the Tyrells? And have these methods been effective, Lady Wynne? Well, you know, I, I'm going to paraphrase our guest from two weeks ago, Mikhail Schick, who said that uh, in relation to Cersei and Tywin, she used the metaphor of an axe and a scalpel. Both very effective tools of destruction, but the axe... It's a bit unsubtle. It probably causes a lot more damage than necessary. So as far as how effective that is, you know, to use an apt metaphor, sometimes when you're pruning roses, the plant comes back stronger. Uh, But, you know, maybe not if you burn it to the ground. So and in the short term, I think Cersei's going to find that everything she did in A Feast for Crows has basically tightened the Tyrell hold on power in the capital and this this packing of the small council and maybe maybe and likely I think even the Kingsguard uh, is is a part of that. But you know, that inevitably is going to lead to her taking more drastic action. Axe meet nuclear explosion, right? <laughs> Direct action. Action, yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, she she is, this is where one of the many parallels to Ares comes along. Uh, early in A Dance with Dragons, Tyrion thinks how she's, she he thinks of her uh, as of diff- several different Targaryen kings. She's like, well, she's this like Magor, she's this like that, and this like, and Ares, of course, is the strongest of the comparisons, in part because Ares would get these ideas about um, uh, how he would, accomplish his goals and then he would well not accomplish them but i think uh basically he tried for years to undermine tywin by by using intrigue and subtlety and subterfuge and he just wasn't very good at it it kept not working and eventually he just got really direct with everything he just started openly murdering people and openly burning people to death and just like okay i'm not good at subterfuge i'll never admit i'm not good at subterfuge but i'm just going to take direct action cuz that's going to work and i think that's what's going to happen with cersei we saw that reflected on the tv show she stopped inter- uh, subterfuge intrigue wasn't working for her she's not good at it so she just started all right well i'm just going to go i'm just going to be blunt and direct and instead of uh, instead of sneaky uh, I will just be overpowering and domineer, domineering. And I, th- I think that's the direction. And that's not going to be good for the Tyrells because she'll just, she might just come right at them, openly come for them, which it's better for her, for the Tyrells if she's bumbling around with bad attempts that might backfire, which, well, they sa- have partly backfired. So to, to sum it up, it's not been, it's been effective somewhat in curbing Tyrell power, but it's been at the cost of her own power. So she's definitely shooting herself in the foot. It's like, to use the axe metaphor, that she's taken that axe to the tree, but it, it slipped and hit her foot, you know, <laughs> and cut off several toes, and now she can't stand <laughs> properly. <laughs> I agree that with that, but, you know, if there's a kind of sea change internally for Cersei... 
and she becomes more competent and like you say more direct then well i'd be i'd be afraid to be on the wrong end of cersei because she could be ruthless she's shown she can be ruthless but on petty matters so if she can redirect that to the tyrells well, it leads into this question. In the show, the Tyrells were devastated when Cersei used wildfire to blow up most most of them. Loras, Marjorie and Mace were all killed. We talked about this last time, but let's go over it again given the magnitude of the implications of this event. Do we think we'll see this scene in the Winds of Winter? And if so, why, Lady Gwyn? Well, yes, I do think we will. Uh, yeah, Loras, Marjorie, Mace, and bonus High Septon. So <laughs> uh, I think it's foreshadowed heavily Cersei's connections to Wildfire, those parallels with Ares Targaryen who planned to burn them all. Uh, we've got the proliferation of Wildfire that's mentioned in recent years since the, the Return of the Dragons. Hidden caches all around the city. Um, so yeah, I think I think there's a lot of indication that something like this is coming. Plus all of the things we've been talking about with Cersei's personality, definitely all seem to be leading in that direction, right? Yeah, I think that we shouldn't underestimate the theme of Cersei aspiring to be Tywin Volume Two in Feast. This theme turns sour. And really, it devolves into a kind of joke, as Cersei's incompetence is well documented. But George doesn't like to make things too easy for his characters, so perhaps he was simply paving a difficult road for Cersei there. In The Winds of Winter, she will have the opportunity to change and improve, and if that happens, she will be thinking of Tywin all over again. Tywin's signature move was to annihilate the Reigns and Tarbecks in a brutal style. And so I can't help but see what we saw in the TV show through this Tywin Lannister lens. What do you think, Aziz? Yeah, it's funny that we talked about Loras at first because it's like the versus the show version. He's already ahead of the curve on being burned to death if that's what's already happened to him. So Mace and Marjorie, yeah, I agree that Cersei murdering them in the High Sparrow with wildfire in one stroke fits really well. It, was, it goes very much along with what I was just saying about her taking more direct actions against her enemies rather than trying to be sneaky, rather than trying to be clever, just outright kill them. <laughs> I mean, it is clever to get them there and blow them up, but it is, it's not... Um, complex so to speak it's not like it's not uh it's not yeah it's not like have them slowly lose power this is like no you are my enemy i will kill you <laughs> but you're not going to know you're my enemy until you're dead though necessarily she's gonna <laughs> not exactly give them a chance to fight back uh and i also so i think that but i also wonder one thing that gives me pause on this going exactly that way is the historical foreshadowing, which is what we pointed to earlier with Dorne being the big bugaboo for the Tyrells historically. And we know that the Sand Snakes are coming. Now, f mostly I think they're a danger to Tommen and Marcella, but I think that it's not unlikely that they will want to fight with the Tyrells or at least start something with the Tyrells. But I do think they're more... Uh, aiming for the Lannisters, but the Lannisters and the Tyrells are married, so they're, that's the same. 
that's at least related. So, and of course, we have a hard time figuring how this is impacted given the other characters that aren't in the show, like, well, Marcel is already dead by this point, but uh, uh, Garland and, and Willis and the, all the many other Tyrells on the council and in, and in Old Town, etc. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, I'd like to just mention that another piece of supporting evidence for this is the hill that all this takes place on. The hill where, uh, I guess it's Rainey's hill where the Great Sept is. Is that right? Uh, I always get them mixed up. It doesn't matter for this for this point. The point is, that hill also has the Pyromancer's Guild <laughs> at the bottom. So you have the bottom of the hill with the Pyromancer's Guild. At the top of the hill is the Great Sept. And they both are noted to have tunnels. <laughs> like exclusive or exp- uh, expansive tunnel systems. So it's entirely possible that not only do they, that, that we see this plot of the, of the Sept blowing up, but, but it's set up through uh, the, uh, connections between the two buildings uh, underground or something like that so that's that's very fertile ground for for possibility there potential i I agree i I actually think i can just add that since you mentioned the sand snakes i kind of wonder if maybe what you know because i agree with you that the sand snakes are they're a danger to cersei's children uh but what if what they do is is kind of the thing that makes Cersei finally take action against the Tyrells. I mean, she, you know, something, whether it's Marcella who dies or Tommen who dies or both of them, (laughs) typical Cersei fashion would be not to think, oh, it was those poisoners from Dorne who did it. She would think it was the Tyrells. I mean, I, I, it doesn't quite make sense if it was Tommen, because, you know, why would the Tyrells kill Tommen? He's, he's, you know, basically their meal ticket. But, you know, if they poison Marcella, as they did, you know, in a different sort of fashion, but as they did, yeah. So if someone poisons Marcella and they, you know, then Cersei's like, it was you, Tyrells, you're going down. I mean, so they, they could indirectly lead to this, this big uh, kaboom that we're talking about. I don't know how she would find out earlier. Like if it's like as a difference from the TV show, she finds Cersei finds out that Joffrey was killed by Olena after the fact. But but if somehow that happens before the fact, that would really drive her mad. That would be like, oh, she would not hold back if she found out that Olena mm-hmm. killed Joffrey. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I don't know how she'd find that out. There's a, but the, but it's definitely mm-hmm. possible. It is because the you know I mean uh, the the hairnet still exists. Sansa has it, you know, Littlefinger knows what happened. So, you know, who knows what, uh, how that information could certainly get back to her without too much imagination, I guess. I mean, yeah. Okay. And let's talk about some of the lesser known Tyrells, some that are not on the page so often. Patron Quarren Halfhand wonders if this kind of explosion would include the deaths of two Tyrells we haven't mentioned yet, Willis and Garlin, Lady Gwyn. Well, I think it's unlikely that Willis, you know, would would be involved because he's he's in High Garden along with Elena, as far as we know. At least that's where you know that's where they say he is, and that's where they said she was going. Garlin is also in the Reach, where he took. They said they said he took half the Tyrell army. Uh, back to claim Brightwater Keep, and then there he was. And they said he was uh, last. Last we heard of him, he's gathering men 
uh, to make an army to retake the shield isles from the ironborn. He's, they're just waiting for, you know, transport uh, in the form of ships to take them there. So I kind of think that both of their deaths are going to happen elsewhere. Uh, don't think either one of them is going to survive, but not going to happen in King's Landing. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think, you know, since we're supposed supposedly going to see Highgarden, um, we maybe she'll be somewhat of a TV version of, of her being sort of the last rose standing on her immediate family. Um but yeah, like I, Garland and Willis, I it's hard to predict. I, I agree with you that they probably are doomed in some way. The how is is trickier. I could see maybe one of them surviving. I mean, Willis is set up to be, sounds like he's a decent guy, maybe. Uh, maybe that matters. But I'm just so curious to see Highgard, and I really i am I'm eager to see how George portrays it, though, even though we may, it might be in the Dream of Spring thing, not a... Uh, wins a winter thing, but who knows? Who knows? I, I don't have a strong confidence on, on when we see it. Just uh, that we, I'm glad that we will. But I do also agree that the Shield Islands thing could be how Garland dies. The uh, it's set up to be for the, for them to take be taken back though. Like oh, Euron's like ah, they're gonna take, they're gonna lose the Shield Islands. So expecting Garland to die there maybe doesn't is is kind of maybe a low confidence guess <laughs> for me on that one. Mm, yeah. I have to say that I, I cannot escape this kind of idea. And it's exactly because of what you said about Willis, where he's he's just been portrayed as this, you know, nice, kind, decent person. And, he, you know, and he has so many great qualities in, in spite of his, um, you know, in spite of what happened between him and Oberyn, they seem to have, you know, they, they've corresponded. And he's, you know, he's just like kind of a perfect prince type of character. And I have this idea, like, of somehow Euron coming across Willis and doing something really horrible, really, really just awful, and just the kind of thing that George would just love to to do to us, I, I feel. But, you know. Something, something to do with the hedge maze. Yeah. And his, his, yeah. His, <laughs> it's his just got it. It would have to that. be. It's making him. It had to be. Something we don't have awful. to imagine it too. We much. talk about it in the future, <laughs> for absolute sure. When we, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure this is going to come up in our primer episodes. Watch out for that one. Yeah, this this upcoming Euron focus is going to be depressing, guys. I, I don't think he's going to do many happy things. Okay, so our patron. Joel I, first of his name, wonders if Lazy Leo will have any significance to the main plot lines of House Tyrell in The Winds of Winter. Lady Gwyn? Well, you know, I just looked into this this afternoon. This is interesting. Um, so if if Leo stays put in Old Town, I mean, he, he could potentially be killed in that same conflict with the Ironborn that possibly Garland or Willis might somehow fall into, but... Since I expect both Garth Gross and Maester Gorman are going to be in King's Landing, probably getting kaboomed with the others uh, there. If Leo's father, Morin, dies in Old Town, because he's he commands the City Watch there, don't forget, it's possible that Leo, Leo Tyrell ends up being like the last male Tyrell, at least in that direct family group. He I looked at it. He has, other than 
The only thing between him and inheriting Highgarden, if all of those people I mentioned die, and it's very likely they will, uh, are two nephews, one of whom is a fully chained maester, and one of whom is probably, a, you know, in some army somewhere and, and has a pretty good chance of dying. Um, and that could leave Leo sit pretty. I mean, what a weird thing that would be. But, you know, he's one of the few named Tyro... Well, not few, because we actually see a billion of them on page. But, I mean, he's definitely mentioned and maybe for a reason. He could be Leo the Unlikely, right? That would be the last... Because he is the last... He is the, the... Not the fourth son of a fourth son, but he is like the third son of the of the fourth son which is the last. So he's the last son of the last son of his line. So that is, that's true. Yeah. So he, he is the last male in order, but you did lay out a very believable series of events where all the others in front of him could die. And what's interesting too, is that he's, he's blonde, which I don't think that necessarily matters, but I always wondered if, if it was, if it did, because the Tyrells are so notably brown haired and brown eyed, but Leo Tyrell is blonde. And I was like, eh, it probably isn't, probably doesn't matter but maybe it does i don't i don't know it just it stood out as a small detail but and he has knowledge of 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 supernatural stuff which is unusual for i mean he's he's the you know in there with the glass candle and and talking to marwin and stuff so he's very like he it's easy to hate the guy he's he sucks he's a jerk but he's he's kind of interesting like the way he's been set up because it's it's both a combination of perplexing like what is the deal with this character and when you look at the high level like you just did like how things could fall down for house tyrell it's like well yeah he might be hmm. it's it's very peculiar uh yeah (laughs) eyes on leo tyrell but no no one wants a bully to succeed do they Uh, okay the show saw elena devastated by the ruin of her entire house but she had an intense final scene as she poisoned herself and confessed to Jamie Lannister that she had killed Joffrey. I think George has said we'll see Highgarden, as Aziz mentioned. So could this scene play out rather like in the show, Lady Gwyn? I don't think we'll have to wait that long to see Highgarden. Maybe, but I mean, it could be you know like as he said dream of springs dream of spring kind of thing so you know it it, but it wouldn't surprise me at any rate whether it's the first time or you know if we're going back there it 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 wouldn't surprise me if olena is in fact the last of the main branch tyrell standing something like this scene does kind of play out in the end i mean i think the show probably uh, capitalized on as as they tended to do when they had strong performers they capitalized on De- uh, Dame Diana Rigg and rest peace Diana because uh, we just lost her in this past week uh, but and she was absolutely fantastic she she owned that character she inhabited her and <laughs> brought something to the screen that was uh, simply you know really amazing um, we loved her for it. Uh, so whether George was always intending to go there or whether they kind of did that just for her because she's was such a uh, very, an incredibly strong performer in, in bringing that character to life. I don't know. I mean, I could see it, you know. 
It's interesting because we, we're told by George that we're going to see Casterly Rock and High Garden, And the show did, in fact, show us both of those places, but for one scene each, right? There was the very brief invasion of Casterly Rock. Yeah. It's almost like... Like they were like, oh, check mark, check mark. Check, yes. <laughs> like he said, we had to do this. We had to do this. So, yeah. Well, well, the Elena scene did seem fitting to me, and I think it could translate into the books. The Tyrells absolutely defeated, but Elena somehow winning the scene by providing a sort of sting in the tail, uh, the final sting of the thorns, perhaps, Aziz. Yeah, I, I, that's a good way to put it. Um, I think that she did, like, even the showrunner said that. She's like, she's the only character that won her death scene. <laughs> Maybe someone else will before the end of it, but no one else in the show did, really. Uh, so that is a really good way to put it. I absolutely agree, and I'm I'm excited to see what George does with this character. I wonder if he's been impacted by uh diana riggs portrayal he's said that about a few other characters and if there's anyone who can that he might have be thinking this on that he didn't bother to say out loud it could be her uh so yeah i yeah <laughs> i'm i'm hopeful for some good stuff from her we we, we deserve more olena <laughs> okay guys final question and it's a deep one if House Tyrell is to be obliterated and completely wiped out in the Winds of Winter, what could we say was their purpose in this story, Lady Gwyn? Well, I think basically a long game, well-played story device, largely meant to move Cersei along her arc, right, and on a meta level. It's no accident that we have no Tyrell point of views and most of the characters themselves are fairly wooden, which means we don't get to know them very deeply and thus we fail to make attachments to them. I mean, somewhat with Marjorie and Olena, although arguably that is in large part because of her portrayal on the show. I mean, they, they did elevate her a lot in the show, so... Uh, in my opinion, the, the entire lot of them is destined to go the way of the Reigns and Tarbecks. And notice that the um, point of comparison of the probable massacre of this entire political cohort isn't Tywin's other gem, the Red Wedding. It's the Reigns and the Tarbecks, because we're never going to have the emotional connection to Tyrells that we do with the Starks, right? Yeah, we have to have houses like this. They are the epitome of Westerosi power politics. They're they're the pro most prominent of, quote, houses like this, defined more by their place in the power hierarchy than who they are or what they stand for, their personality or even their history. Uh, this is intentional. I think the lack of uniqueness and personality is intentional because they fill that space of the the power players, the all the, the this instinct this situation this uh world that exists they are a microcosm of of a lot of different houses that are wield power uh cynically that want they they want power um but they don't have there's nothing they want it for there there's they don't have high-minded ideals they're mostly just out for themselves they're not necessarily evil they're just 
part of the system. They are the system almost, you could say. Uh, they may define it better than anyone else because they don't, uh, because there's no attitude or goal behind it. It's just power for power's sake. But symbolically and thematically, it's so well done by George. A golden rose reflects this ideal so well. They're plentiful. They're beautiful. They're sweet. Roses, especially golden roses, are rich. So are they. The thorns are present to remind us that they're dangerous, but they're flowers. Flowers don't last, especially not when winter comes. (laughs) But they always come back, right? They always come back with spring, whether it's them or someone exactly like them. There's always going to be more... Tyrells, whether it's House Tyrell or just people that are like them. So I think this is a, it's really well done by George because this is, is, is very much reflects a reality of monarchical societies and just all societies. There's always people that are just out for power. They're everywhere. You can't get rid of them. Even when you do get rid of them, they end up coming back <laughs> in different form. <laughs> so the Tyrells are, are really secondary characters and sometimes you... You just need someone for the kind of main characters to be in conflict with and to fight against. And that's that's not disparaging of the role of the Tyrells. I think it's a great role, and I think the characters serve that very well. Okay, so guys, we're going to wrap it up. Aziz, thank you so much for joining us today and at short notice. You've given us some really great insights and answers. Why don't you tell us what History of Westeros podcast is up to and maybe some of your other projects as well. Well, I think you mispronounced History of Westeros. It's pronounced Blood of the Podcast. And my and it's not Aziz, <laughs> it's Christina. So yes, I've been Christina Triple and you can find me at Blood of the Podcast. No. <laughs> yeah, History of Westeros is about to restart. Valar Reredus, we're doing that. Uh, we're back to that with the Dance of Dragons starting on October 4th, back to our normal Sunday schedule. We've also just recorded Blackwood Part 2, which is the modern Blackwoods, uh, starting with the time of the of the dance, or starting with the time of Aegon's Conquest and going through that roughly 300-year period. Obviously, a lot of that's focused on the Dance of the Dragons because that's the most defined historical period. Lots of Blackwood characters, looking at them as a whole, kind of like we, how we looked at the Tyrells here in a lot of ways. And we will be putting out at least one more scripted episode before we get back to Valar Aridus as well. So lots to look out for. And thanks again for having me. Y'all, this was a lot of fun. I always enjoy ch- chatting with you guys. And I feel like this was another excellent uh, addition to our long history together. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Um, very good to chat with you. And we'll be back with another live stream on, in two weeks. That's October 3rd. Don't forget, if you're listening live now, to like the uh to like here hit the like button subscribe and you know thank you so much everyone for being here thanks to people who are listening in the future (laughs) the pre-recorded video and also our podcast listeners who will be hearing this within a couple of days uh we appreciate you so much and thank you we'll see you back uh, back here in a couple weeks yeah thanks for all your support Port of the live stream so far there will be more and a special shout out to all of our chat room mods you guys do a great job and we're very lucky to have you helping us out 
Thanks to each and every one of our patrons who support us. If you want to support us as a patron, check out our Patreon campaign, which includes all manner of incentives and, of course, helps us out. So thank you very much, guys, and enjoy your weekend. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.